Hi, I'm Matt Waller, Dean of the Sam M. Walton College of Business. Welcome to Be Epic, the podcast where we explore excellence, professionalism, innovation, and collegiality, and what those values mean in business, education, and your life today. With me today, Liz Wiseman, who's a New York Times bestselling author and executive advisor. And I learned about her because I was just looking at books I wanted to read, and I read the summary of a book, um, and it's called The Multiplier Effect. And I thought, I like this. And I read it, and I loved it. So I asked Liz to talk to me about it. Liz started her career with Oracle. She eventually worked her way up to vice president, and she was there for 16 years. And now she is the CEO of the Wiseman Group, Uh, And she's been doing that for almost 11 years. Um, So, Liz, thank you so much for taking some time to visit with me about this. I appreciate it. Oh, I'm I'm excited for our conversation. And I'm just delighted that you found the book and that it was helpful. It it really is. You know, I was thinking about it more from uh, leaders that I've worked under in my career. And I personally have experienced this where I feel like some of the leaders I've been around have made me smarter, uh, got the best out of me, and others I don't do so well around. And so I actually have been, I didn't know it was called a multiplier, but I've been trying to do that. And again, I think that's why this really struck a chord with me. Would you mind first just explaining what a multiplier is and what a diminisher is And then I want to talk to you a little bit about the uh, research that you did. Well, um, maybe I'll start with a diminisher. Most people have all had an experience with a diminishing leader. So a diminisher is a leader that other people hold back around or aren't at their best around. And they're often really, really smart, capable people. But sometimes they're so focused on their own ideas, their own know-how, their intelligence that they don't see and use the full intelligence of people around them. They tend to tell people what to do. They tend to make the decisions. They tend to micromanage and they get a fraction of people's capability. And what I found in the research is that these diminishing leaders get less than half on average of people's available intelligence. And by that, I mean their insight, their know-how, their business acumen, their technical skills. And I noticed plenty of these kinds of leaders early in my career, like they were smart, but no one around them got to be all the way smart. And it was almost like they used their intelligence as a weapon. But then I noticed a very different kind of leader who was also really smart and really capable themselves, but they used their intelligence in a way that invited you know, if not demanded other people be at their best. Like these are leaders who make you think, who make you want to step up and take responsibility and take ownership. And, you know, like when these leaders walk in a room, people don't just kind of like avert their eyes and shut up and hold back, play it safe, don't say this, don't say that. You know, these are people that you think boldly around, that you can debate with. Uh, These are people who you can be honest with. These are people who, um, you know, you want to do your very best work for. So they're essentially, they're leaders 
who use their intelligence in a way that amplifies the intelligence of people around them. And one thing that's really interesting about that, too, is, you know, in your book, you talk about people who are linear or additive in their thinking about resources versus those that are multiplicative in the sense that, you know, you could say, look, if we want to get 10% growth, we're going to need a commensurate growth in headcount. But another approach is to try to yield more capability from the people that are working in your organization by taking on the characteristics of a multiplier. Would you mind speaking to that a little bit? Well, just as I was hearing you frame that idea, it made me think of what's it like to work for a growing company? You know, the company's doing well, they're growing, they're hiring a bunch of people, but they're underutilizing the talent that's already there. You know, it's funny, I study leadership and I study in particular a type of leader that that gets 100% of people's available intelligence and capability. But, you know, it's funny, um, the thing I've really learned about leadership has really nothing to do with leadership. It's it's more about contributorship. And and this is this crosses cultures and continents. People come to work every day desperately wanting to give all of their capability. They want to be smart and take the lead on things and sign up and contribute. And actually, people want to be held accountable. When we take a job, we don't think about what's a job that I can like skate through and do as little as possible. That's a learned behavior. You know, when most of us are planning our careers and thinking about what kind of work do I want to do? What contribution do I want to make? We want to contribute and share. And so, you know, what happens in these growing companies is that now you're building a culture of disenfranchisement and disengagement and resentment. And, you know, I am, I was up in San Francisco at this rapidly growing software company and we were talking about this gap and I asked like what 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 gets built inside this gap between what people want to give and what their leaders are actually receiving and and able to to get and somebody just yelled from the back of the room he said yeah crappy products get built and, and you know and so like that that comes from this like addition model of growth which is you know to grow we need to add resources now think about that versus an organization that is growing by deeply utilizing the resources that exist that the people who work there are are seen as smart and capable like they're growing along with the company of course, to grow a company, you have to add resources over time. But if you first look inside the organization and deeply utilize talent, give people challenges, stretch assignments, um, ask people hard questions, give them a chance to take ownership of things, like that's an easy company to recruit into. Well, I know that you've done consulting for really impressive companies like Apple, Disney, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, Nike, Tesla, Twitter, and others. But within a company, you can find a, a wide variety of these kind of people. You know, I, I, th- I was thinking when I was reading through this, one leader that I'm really familiar with, of course, 
is Sam Walton. I've studied him, and um, I think he was one of the greatest entrepreneurs of all time for a number of reasons. But one of his uh, top 10 rules for building a business is to swim upstream, kind of going against the norms. And he did that in so many ways. And so, you know, there's stories about early on, some of his executives felt like as we're growing, we really need to get information from all the stores every day. And so they spent a huge amount of money, more than any retailer had ever contemplated, putting in a, a system that required satellites and dishes to be able to communicate every day. And he really didn't want to do it. But he had used he had been a multiplier. And so people in his organization felt free to challenge him. And they were very confident. And, and you know, he eventually said, okay, we'll, we'll try it. And they did. And it truly set them apart. But it has such a profound impact on the company from a strategic competitive perspective. Because not only do you wind up getting more effective leaders that can come up with creative ideas, but you don't have to spend as much money on resources to get there. Now, I know you, I wanted to talk just briefly about your research. If I remember correctly, you asked people in these organizations, tell me of a leader who has these characteristics, and you were describing a multiplier, you didn't tell them that. And then you did the same thing with a diminisher. And then you went and talked to those leaders who were diminishers and, and uh, multipliers. And that's how you collected your, your data to come out with your research. Would you mind talking about that a little bit? So successful professionals was my criteria. So I was looking for people who had had successful, solid careers, good thinkers, you know, people with good integrity. So I'm ruling out people who have like an ax to grind. Like, you know, I hate every boss I've ever had. So I'm out talking to successful professionals and I asked them to identify two different kinds of leaders. And I would describe someone that I later came to call a diminisher you know, someone who, you know, problems aren't getting solved and you're not making progress. You feel like you're stalling out. And then I would describe a very different scenario. Like, okay, think of a scenario where like hard problems are getting solved. Like you're finding success, you know, you bring challenge. And they identify two different leaders. And then I build a profile for each one of them. And it's a set of questions and a survey that allows me to compare the mindsets for those two different leaders, the behavior, and then what they got from people. And so I would ask them, like, what percentage of your intelligence? And I had that all defined. And I did that across, you know, came close to about 100 different people. So I'm not the one defining who's a diminisher and a multiplier. Like, leadership is very much in the eyes of the beholder. Who was a leader who engendered this kind of contribution from you? So I built a profile for each sort of a behavioral profile. For a lot of those multipliers, anyone that I wanted to write about in the book, I then went and interviewed those leaders. I often would go and interview a dozen people who had worked for them. Like, tell me about, like in this case, I'd be like, tell me about what it was like working for Sam Walton. What did he do under this situation? What did he do under that? And so I did this kind of like rich investigation around these multiplier leaders. The part I didn't do is I didn't do that around the diminishers. Because that's an awkward conversation. You know? like, okay. <laughs> hey, you know, can I talk to you about like all the people who see you as a diminished? So I didn't do that. I kind of worked with 
those leaders as other people saw them. But I have enough experience working very closely with diminishing leaders that it was not too hard to uh, get the essence of what they were doing as a leader. Now, would you mind telling me a book you really like, uh, a business book that you have really enjoyed? Well, probably the book that has influenced me the most is Good to Great. And it's not only the content of like, what are the characteristics of these great companies? It's Jim's books and Jim Collins, for those who aren't familiar with him, they give you such a window inside the mind of a great researcher. And Jim is very much a hero to me. I knew him a little bit when he was out at Stanford and I was at Oracle. He did a little bit of work for us. It was fun. I got to do a, like a teaching tour with Jim in Australia. And one of the things I got to say was like, Jim, like you inspired me because you made your research process so clear that I felt I could do it. He really inspired me and taught me through his work how to do a comparison study, you know, how to look at A and B and compare them and see like, how do you normalize as many of the conditions as possible so that you can actually find the differentiators. And that book has probably inspired me more than any other book. And I've read it several times. That is a great book. I noticed, though, uh, Stephen Covey wrote the foreword to your book, which was quite a coup to be able to get him to do I that. Know. There's a whole story behind that. But we, I was so just delighted and honored to have him write the foreword for the book. Yeah, he clearly really liked the book as well. And Seven Habits is another book that has had a lot of influence on me and, and a lot of people. And it's funny, I was just... um. My daughter had asked about it and she's a senior in college and she's going to be heading out into the workforce and she had asked about it and and I'm like, oh, I've been waiting. Like, what a great chance because I'm going to give you this book that my mother and father-in-law gave me and my husband. That book came out, I think, the year I graduated from college. And so it was this graduation gift and it just was kind of a way of thinking about the world. But I said, oh, yeah, let me give you the the copy of that book that, you know, um, dad's parents gave us and I couldn't find it. I've loaned it out to someone. So someone's got my like copy from 1988, I think. So the Walton College has about 6,100 undergraduates and about five or 600 graduate students. Mm -hmm. And a lot of students are, of course, going to school in this really unusual time. Our students tend to do pretty well in placement because We've got retail and CPG, mm-hmm. uh, which has done well, but it's still a challenging situation, and 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 not just in this time, but in general. What kind of advice would you give to to students that are graduating, either from undergraduate or graduate programs? Mm-hmm. Well, you have just asked a question that has like plucked at my heartstrings and tweaked my mind because I'm in the middle of writing a book right now that um, is about not not about the art of great leadership, but it's the art of great contributorship. And particularly, I've been looking at why are some people so valuable inside organizations? Like everyone brings smarts and capability into a company, but some people play that better than others. And some people find a way to become extremely valuable. And I've noticed this dynamic for a long time my working theory was it's not a function of intelligence and it's not a function of work ethic. Like those might be present, 
but it's it's about a way of working. And so I've been trying to really understand like what are the practices of the most valuable contributors inside organizations. And I'll I'll share a couple. The first is that you know the most valuable contributors they don't do their job. They do the job that needs to be done. We think about that concept from a marketing standpoint, like what's the job that needs to be done? Like what's the need behind a product or a service? But, you know, the most valuable people come in and they say, well, this is my job, but that's what's important. And I'm going to do the job that needs to be done rather than the job I was hired to do. And I remember this actually very early in my career. I came um, into the workforce and into Oracle wanting to do something with leadership and management development. And I'd been at the company for about a year. There's a big reorganization. And so we're all kind of looking for new jobs inside the company because the the organization had changed and I'm interviewing for a job. And I answer the vice president's questions. And then it was kind of an opportunity for me to share, here's what I think I can do for you and for the company. And so I tell him that, you know, the company's growing very rapidly and that the company you know, has a lot of new people in management who don't have a lot of management skills. And I could build a management training program for the company. And I'm actually really passionate about it. And he listens to me and he's like, Liz, we're so excited to have you join this group. And it was a new hire training group. He said, but actually right now we have a different problem. He said, we are hiring several thousand people a year right out of college. And our biggest challenge is getting them up to speed on Oracle technology. So what he was essentially asking me to do was to teach programming to programmers, because we were hiring all the top technologists out of the top universities in the nation. I had come out of business school. I was one of the the business-oriented people, and he wanted me to now sign up for a job teaching programming to a bunch of nerds. And it wasn't something I had skill in, and it wasn't something I was particularly interested in. But it was funny, even back then at maybe 23 years old, I said, oh, what he's telling me is like, Liz, go make yourself useful. Now, he never said I had to. He just gave me this gentle enough coaching to say, you know what, Liz, make yourself useful. And it's a strategy that I've really adopted throughout my career, which is don't don't be in love with your job. Don't be in love with your career. Who cares what your major was? Who cares what you were hired to do? Like find out what your boss has to get done and then go make yourself useful. And it's amazing the impact that you make when you're doing work that's on somebody's agenda. And it's amazing the opportunities that open when you have essentially subordinated your own interests to do what's needed, that suddenly other people start caring about your interests. Like, okay, we asked Liz to do that, she did that. Then it's suddenly, Liz, what do you wanna do? Because you built this trust and this track record. So boy, and particularly as the world right now is um, turned upside down for almost all of us, it's hard to know, do I just keep doing what I've been doing? Like, what's my role like? It's like figure out where there's a problem and just go make yourself useful. It feels pretty good to work in that space as well. 
Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Be Epic podcast from the Walton College. You can find us on Google, SoundCloud, iTunes, or look for us wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and rate us. You can find current and past episodes by searching Be Epic Podcast, one word, that's B-E-E-P-I-C podcast, and now Be Epic. Be Epic.